Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters Podcast from GP Strategies. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts, exploring best practices and innovative insights to help you and your organization improve performance. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My guests today are Peter Dean and Greg Long. Peter is the strategy, leadership, and culture lead for GP Strategies' EMEA practice. And Greg is vice president of organizational excellence at GP Strategies. And they're with us to talk about the when, where, and how of restarting the global economy and what that's going to mean for business owners. So Peter and Greg, thanks for being here. Certainly. Looking forward to chatting. So, Peter, let's jump right in and let's start with you. The economy was buzzing along. It seems like kind of a long time ago now, but it really wasn't. It was just a few months ago. And then it just got stopped in its tracks by the pandemic. And we've never experienced anything like this before. So I think it's really hard to, to grasp just to get your head around it. So help us understand the scope and the impact of this global shutdown and what it's going to take in general terms to get restarted. The global pandemic hit. Businesses, leaders were sailing along. They were driving along. Everything was going well. Plans were in place. Strategies were moving forward. And then literally overnight, lockdown. The economic environment changed and actually went into reverse. So the challenges were immediate. And the interesting thing was that there were no maps there was no GPS. There was no easy means of navigating. And at that point, the interesting fact from my perspective is trust came to the fore. Trust in the sense that you have a global population of 7 billion. Overnight, they agreed to a lockdown from their leaders. And that might be temporal or transient, but that is immediately what happened for three weeks, six weeks. We've locked down. Employees have been in the same place. They've been looking to their leaders for um, reassurance and helping them navigate through these particular work, uncharted waters so that they come out safely the other side. Communication, staying connected. We've seen politicians, we've seen leaders talking every day. And that communication, which is both empathetic and um, rational is critical to helping businesses move forward. You know, we've got to get to the recognition that um, it's okay not to know because in these uncharted waters, it's better to say, actually, I don't know, but we're thinking about it and to see how that moves forward. So the restart, the restart is starting now. We're looking at how we can move forward in different ways. The Initial safeguarding of employees, and I think globally everybody's first point of reference has been to ensure that their employees are well and that they are healthy and they are able to stay connected, and that's critically important. But the next step is how to start to move forward as businesses, how to re-engage. Some sectors um, haven't been that impacted, whether it's health, whether it's logistics and distribution, whether it's life sciences and farmers. They've continued. In fact, they've probably had a bounce effect because of what's happening. But for me, the words that I would look to say in terms of the restarters, people and business leaders begin to put their head above the pandemic parapet are agility. We have to be very agile to ensure that um, we seize the moment and see what is happening in that space. And the other 
word that I would look to use is innovation. Innovation is critically important. And normally, if you think about innovation, it takes months, years. We're seeing things happening within a week or over a weekend or over a couple of weeks where manufacturing lines have been repurposed. Mercedes F1 team recently produced in conjunction with the university some equivalent ventilators within a week. That's innovation. And I think that innovation will be the hallmark of starting the economy and starting businesses. It's more than just change, because I think change in the current environment is just too static. It's too process-led. Innovation is what do we actually need and how do we get it done? And it's that mindset from the leaders and the employees then recognizing the opportunity. So that's some of the words and thoughts in that space. But I think, Greg, you've got some similar ideas as well. Yeah, Peter, and I'll pick up on that trust idea that you talked about and how overnight, literally, as you said, folks granted a level of trust that's pretty unprecedented. From a business leader perspective, I would add now that that trust has to be earned to be kept. It's been granted, but now business leaders need to be thinking about that grant and how do they keep it, how do they earn it, how do they nurture it. And part of that, frankly, is going to be how do they trust their employees? I saw a statistic once that three quarters of all managers said that the reason they don't like remote work is because they don't trust that their employees will work a full day. Well, baloney, uh, frankly, that's, that's not true. And we're finding that out now that the people can be, as you said, quite agile, quite innovative and quite remote all at the same time. I mean, I think that's spot on in terms of the home working. I'd never worked from home previously. I'm now in um, a rural location and learning to lead a virtual team, which has been fascinating. And the amount of connectedness that you need to have to ensure that um, everyone feels comfortable. Uh, And it's that reassurance with um, employees that actually... We are moving in a common purpose and in a common direction. We don't have a plan that's written down. You know, plans tend now uh, to be week by week, month by month. They're not the annual plan because we're not even sure what the car that we will be driving looks like in a month's time. You know, we were driving along quite happily in our, in our petrol car. We're now with a, an automatic gearbox going forward, we're going to need a manual gearbox to go first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear. It might even be electric. It might even be diesel. It might even be um, public transport. Who knows? The whole structure is rapidly evolving into what is required. Yes. So, so Greg, one part of the equation, and this has already come up a little bit, is where businesses are going to start fun- functioning again. And we're already seeing some countries beginning to emerge from lockdown, reopening their economies to one extent or another. So as this continues to roll out around the world, how do you see that? How how do you see this playing out geographically? I think it's a fascinating fascinating question. The the issue that I see that's going to really drive some of that is that we've, for the recent past, I guess, been focused on globalization, global supply chains, global markets, global everything. And that's not going to change in one sense, but in another sense, it's going to change completely Uh, because localization 
will now take on a huge aspect of that. As you think about where countries restart, where markets restart, where consumers come out and start doing the things that they were doing before, that's all going to be very localized. And so as a result, companies need to be thinking not just globally, but also locally in terms of their markets, their types of business, their types of consumers, their types of supply chains, the types of regulatory environments even that they're operating within in different places. And so that's all going to be a factor along the way about how they get restarted, where they get restarted, um, what they can do differently. And as Peter said, this whole notion of, of knowing for sure isn't going to happen. The, the, you're going to have to be agile and react to the market, the realities of particular places in terms of, of how this restart is going to go and where it's going to go first. Yeah, right. So, Peter, it sounds like, based on what Greg is saying, that this balance between the global and the local, that calculus is shifting, has shifted. And when we emerge from this, it might look quite different from how it's looked in the, over the past several decades. What, what's your thought on that? I think the next 12 to 18 months are going to be absolutely fascinating and crucial as business um, comes to terms with the new norm, whatever the new norm will look like. We've had the traditional norm. We knew what that was. We had the prior pandemic norm. We're now facing a new norm. That new norm is being invented as we move forward. It's going to be looking and feeling different in each local market um, because, as Greg said, we're, they're in different places, different aspects of customer, consumer, market regulation. And for me, the next 12 months in particular, the local aspect of how a global organization transacts will be really critical to emerging fully formed as a newer, stronger business. And leaders have a critical part to play in that from the innovation. And I think the innovation will be much more at the local level because that is what the market needs. And at the end of 12 to 18 months, there's going to be a shakeup as to exactly what is best in class because you're going to have many, many instances of new ideas coming to the fore of employees working in many, many different ways. And then there'll be that coming back together to say, actually, this is how that can all come together in ways that benefit employees, stakeholders, customers. Peter, what, I'm curious, what's your thoughts on the, the localization of a global supply chain? That seems like that's going to be a big issue. Yeah, the supply chains that have been put in place um, for efficiencies have been global. They are fractured at the present moment in time, whether that's fractured from a lot of elements within the supply chain not still not being in place or having been lost. You can't move goods in the same way from shipping or from aeroplanes, etc. So the mechanism of moving things from point A to B is very, very different. So I think the global supply chain will be reviewed, if for nothing else, from a contingency perspective. It's not necessarily going to be that everything is offshore or outsourced. And I think economies and markets will need to have an element of self-sufficiency that is probably greater going forward than it has been in the last 
decade where there's been a move to have absolute efficiency because that was based on the certainty of delivery and the pandemic has challenged that thinking i believe and it strikes me that this notion that there's going to be broken supply chains because there's going to be a lot of links in those chains that that don't exist anymore frankly unfortunately there's going to be organizations that just don't survive this whole process and so this notion of having redundant supply chains i think is going to end up being a, a big issue for companies to deal with which as you described, it's not efficient any longer. It's redundant, it's flexible, it's uh, self-healing, if you will. There's a notion of self-healing supply chains that I don't think has risen to the fore yet in the, in the conversation, but I think it's going to pretty shortly. Yes, I think the, the supply chain itself will need to stand back and look how it becomes more robust and more resilient so that it is actually able to accommodate, God forbid, another such act. The challenges are many, many, many fold. But I think the agility and the innovation, as we described earlier, with some of the repurposing of manufacturing lines or just changing of parameters to ensure that things are available. The hot topic at the present moment within the UK is the supply of PPE equipment for hospitals. You know, we've got 800 companies now in the UK repurposed and, and providing that. They're using the skills and the competencies within the manufacturing space, but they've willingly come to, to help. And I think that's a global initiative. And that's a really good example, to my mind, of how leaders from the <coughs> governments and the politicians down, we've identified the need and how uh, that trust has then got um, played into, we can do this. And there is, I think, a real we-can-do spirit that is present and will continue to be present as we navigate our way through this pandemic. So it strikes me, Peter, that an interesting challenge for business leaders of those 800 companies now supplying PPE is that that's a temporary need. Uh, what are they going to do with that capacity that they're now building? And it, it brings to mind, there's a there's kind of an apocryphal story about Pierre DuPont in World War One, the DuPont company was supplying munitions and gunpowder and such to both sides, to all sides of the conflict. And Pierre DuPont called in all of his engineers and, and best thinkers in the middle of the war. The markets were booming and said, this war is going to end. What are we going to do with our capacity after the war? And hence, the DuPont chemical company was born. Uh, really out of out of the foresight of somebody saying, this is not going to last forever. We need to think post-pandemic in this case. Yeah, we're making ventilators and PPE now, but in 6, 12, 18, 24 months, some period of time, we need to think differently. And what's going to be emerging uh, as part of that? So this notion of, of as you said, agility I think is going to be an interesting one from the supply chain backwards, but also from the marketing side forwards and thinking about what are we going to do? What's our strategy going to be? How are we going to respond? What are the new needs going to be that we can't even anticipate right now? Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do is talk to the marketplace, talk to clients daily. What are you thinking? How are you seeing your plans evolving? What do you think they are looking like? So those type of consultative conversations, because what we're seeing is that 
leaders are looking for the one-to-one connections. They're looking to have sounding boards and conversations. They're not unilaterally in buying mode at the moment. They are, to a certain extent, looking at that. But it's more, how do I ensure that I'm best positioned? And to pick up on the 800 companies being a, a positive response to, but how can we innovate what we have done into things that are required by the market going forward? So fascinating and interesting times. Yeah. So we've begun to talk about once businesses start reopening, how that's going to happen, what that's going to look like. Let's drill down into that even more. The question of the supply chain is a crucial one, but there are many other moving parts and and pieces. So Greg, for individual businesses, what do you think are going to be some of the major challenges, some of the other major challenges when it comes time to say, okay, we're we're back open for business. Jeremy, in that regard, I think one of the interesting things that's that's a topic of conversation that we haven't had for a long time is this notion of essential workers. I mean, six months ago, nobody would have said that restocking grocery stores is an essential task in the marketplace. But today, everybody is incredibly thankful for those folks who are sacrificing and risking themselves, frankly to stock grocery stores or to shop for us, fill in the blank. And, it, and it's an incredible rethinking of work. I think businesses also need to drill a little bit deeper and say, well, not just essential worker, but what is essential work? This notion of what tasks really need to be done and then the ripple effect of those tasks of what needs to be done to support those things that need to be done by essential workers. And so this notion of how we view work, I think, is going to be a critical part of the conversation as, as the reopening begins. Uh, Peter, what's your thought? <laughs> yes, I mean, essential workers, uh, culturally, we call them key workers, but you're absolutely right. They are not necessarily the, the job titles that you would have expected to be classified in that way. And they are increasingly the bedrock of the the economy and how we all operate, exist and live. So the notion of what is an essential key worker role, most evident within the health service, I think will drive a lot of ideas and thinking and how we recognize and reward that particular attribute because it hasn't necessarily been at the top of the pay scale. And I think that in many instances, the value that they bring has been hidden Mm -hmm. and that will be a conversation that will be taking place i also think from businesses emerging i think that the home working norm for the next six months will be the reality and what does that mean for peripheral businesses within the real estate sector i don't really understand how they come out with virtual models so that you've got their you know, on one side, you've got the leadership challenge with virtual teams, and then you've obviously got the, the challenge for other business sectors that that becomes the new norm. Because if it is working well and the businesses are able to move forward in the ways that they want, it's something, to quote what you were saying earlier, Greg, the, the reality is that it, it, it will happen. It can happen. It does happen, and it will continue to happen. That's just a very small example, I think, of one of the businesses that or business impacts that will happen. It's interesting, too, to pick up on that, Peter, that a recent study that I read in the U.S. said that only roughly a third of the jobs in the country can be done remotely. 
that means two thirds have to be done in person, whether it's restocking grocery stores or operating a train or driving a truck or those other what we now know are critical jobs. And I think that's going to cause businesses to rethink this notion of, of work and roles and frontline. And interestingly, in one respect, there's an interesting perspective about the relative value of management and leadership versus frontline workers and which provides which level of value to the organization and how can each be leveraged, how should each be focused on uh, and so forth. This notion of, you mentioned earlier that you haven't worked remotely before and learning how to both work remotely and lead a remote team is changing the perspective of a lot of organizations around what does it mean to lead? Is it really coaching? Is it really managing? Is it really assisting? Is it being a player coach? There's a whole lot of things that are wrapped up in this discussion now about work and how we think about work. Yeah, Andy, if I can pick up on the on the coaching aspect of that, Greg, I think coaching and mentoring will become increasingly important. We have a lot of virtual delivery of leadership programs, which is great. And they will continue. But I think increasingly the need to have these one-on-one conversations, the coaching and the mentoring, particularly if the percentage of home workers continues to be high. And I think I heard, I saw that the US Supreme Court is now sitting virtually. Mm-hmm. The parliament in the UK, the courts are now sitting virtually. So they're setting precedents and people will be asking, why not? Why should this not continue? And it goes back to the tradition. But the tradition is being challenged because there are so many different and new norms emerging that will help shape businesses going forward in a variety of ways. And I think it's that is the the challenge. And you know, I alluded earlier to the fact that there's probably no maps and no GPS you know, for the next six months. The, the plan is a week, and then it's going to be two weeks, and then it's going to be a mm-hmm. month, and then it's mm-hmm. going to be three That's months. That's right. Because um, you're taking steps in the directions that you believe you may have to circle back. So I think the agility, the flexibility, the innovation, all underpinned by the trust that you've created within your workforce, that they believe that they are heading in the right direction and that they are moving um, towards a place of safety. And I'll, I'll add to that, Peter, I think you're exactly right, that one of the things that leaders need to start to think more about as they think about this notion of work and essential and key and what all that means is measuring the outcomes that people produce, not the time that they put in to produce them. This notion of work as an eight hour day or a 10 hour day or whatever it may be, I think is going to reduce in importance. And what's going to increase in importance is how much an individual produces the quality of what they produce. So if you can, if I can get three or four really productive, incredible hours of Peter Dean working at home, would I rather have that or eight hours of him mostly working, partly working in an office setting? Well, I'd I'd clearly much rather have the more productive, more quality output as opposed to simply putting in time. And that's not the way that we have traditionally managed, led, thought about work. And so that's going to be a big shift in our thinking. 
Yeah, I mean, metrics for measuring outputs and outcomes are not necessarily linked to a time card. The, the time card is I was in this point in this place from point A to point B in terms of the clock. The contribution and the output, I think we'll be starting to look at how we can do that, it, measure that in different ways because we're going to be needing to do that given the variety of key worker positions, essential worker positions, and the changing in that particular space. What, what's the saying? Business as usual is anything but? <laughs> Yeah, and we're hearing the new norm, but no one can define what the new norm is. And we have to have completely open minds so that it doesn't actually exclude anything. Absolutely. I want to round back for a minute to this notion of the essential worker. And this has come a lot uh, up a lot in the media. And probably the most common example is this, the, as, as you mentioned, Greg, the supermarket shelf stocker. And I think we can all agree that, yes, of course, in some really basic way, we're recognizing the essential nature of this kind of work. But in the aftermath of all this, when we reemerge into whatever the world looks like, what do you think the implication is going to be for the people who actually do those jobs beyond the kind of lip service of, yep, that was really important? Because th the fact still remains that to stock a supermarket shelf takes relatively minimal training. In other words, a lot of people mm -hmm. could do that, right? Is this likely to result in higher compensation for those jobs. What I'm getting at is, what do you think that's actually going to mean beyond the rhetoric of us recognizing in this moment that, yes, this is essential in a way that we may not have recognized before? Let me take a, a, a start at that, Jeremy. It's a great question. And I, I'll go back to what Peter said earlier about trust. Folks have granted trust to politicians, to business leaders in a, an amazing way. If they're going to keep that trust they're going to have to think about the value that those individuals that you're mentioning are, are delivering to the business, are delivering to the economy, are delivering to society, frankly. And I think it's going to force a reevaluation of how we compensate those kinds of roles, how we staff those kinds of roles, how we put value propositions in place for those kinds of roles. And, and I think that's going to be a big issue. Otherwise, as you're, as you're kind of hinting at, if we kind of slide back to, oh, thanks very much, but we don't need you anymore. Well, that worked this time, but maybe next time, not so much. And so if we want those, those folks to, to really be around when we need them, as we do, then we're going to have to rethink how we value them, how we compensate them in a major way. Peter, what's your thoughts? I've got a left field thought, which is that you could actually do all of the shopping and home deliveries online. So that is an increasing percentage of how people shop. So you've got that as one option in terms of recognition of the value that the people stocking shelves bring is incalculable because they are helping people they are knowledgeable about their products and services and ranges. So for me, it's creating the right role and image for that role as to what it is really there to do. And that is to provide an enhanced level of experience for consumers. And I think the opportunity for the, the retail sector is to 
enrich the customer experience based on the trust and goodwill that they've engendered over the last two, three months. Um, because there is a risk that is very evident that the global logistics and delivery organizations are able to replicate what they do, but in a different way. And it's characterizing the importance of both those opportunities in ways that um, value the output of the individuals. So from business leader perspective, they not only have to think about uh, their markets, their supply chains, their work and workers, but they also need to think about their customer experience and how that's changed as a result of this pandemic and how the, the, the societal psyche has changed and how people want to interact with companies and businesses and such. And that may, in fact, never be a new normal again. And businesses going forward, if they're going to think about this strategically and position themselves for success coming out of this mess, have to think about all of those factors. So there's a lot of plates in the air that people need to be spinning very carefully. I'll give you a little anecdote, which is related to myself. I hate shopping. I hate shopping with an absolute passion. Six weeks into home isolation, God, I'd love to go to the shops and buy something. <laughs> and, Whoever um, thought that grocery it's shopping almost because would be I can't, a pleasant I experience. Yeah, but if it wasn't there, it'd be even worse. And that's the the, the psyche. So um, I was talking to my wife and literally saying, I'd love to go to the shops. She said, but you never go shopping. I said, I know, but all of a sudden I want to. I feel the need to, uh, and I want to interact in that way. <laughs> but obviously, um, at the current moment in time, we can't, and you're adapting to You know, that. you said an interesting word there, Peter, that I, I think is, is critical for all of us. You want to interact in that way. I would, I would posit that yes. you don't want to go shopping. You want to go interacting. And yep. that's a, you want to have that exactly. connection. And so that customer experience, that uh, consumer experience is something that we all need to think about because, yeah, we can shop remotely. We'll eventually have drones delivering groceries to our residences, but that's not interacting. That's not the human connection that we all thrive on. No, absolutely. And the, uh, you know, the messages at the bottom of people's emails at the moment are stay safe, stay well, stay mm -hmm. connected. And that state connected is increasingly important because those conversations, the time invested with teams from the empathetic and the rational perspective, just the communication to ensure that um, people are comfortable. They know what you're trying to achieve. They know what you don't know. That level of connection and engagement, I think, is critical. My wife and I were walking the other day. We take several walks a day to try to keep out in the fresh air a bit. And I was commenting to her that in the past four days, I had used five different video conferencing tools. And she said, well, why don't they standardize? And I said, well, that's a, that's a great question. But the notion that a year ago, I would have said, I've been, I'm using five different video conferencing tools as part of my day-to-day -day work. No, not really. But that's where we are. Well, I can add a sixth one today. Exactly. Squadcast. <laughs> that's new for me. I have yeah, to that's that's right. Squadcast is what we're using to record this this conversation right now. So most of the news day to day, unfortunately, has been pretty alarming, pretty grim. So, Greg, let's try to leave our listeners with something positive. Yeah. Sure. I'll, I'll pick a couple things that I think are, are encouraging, Jeremy. One is 
I continue to be amazed at how resilient folks are. Peter gave the example of the Mercedes F1 team producing ventilators. There's a vacuum cleaner company in the U.S., Dyson, that churned out some 15,000 ventilators over a weekend. And the way that people have changed shopping and granted trust, it's, it's incredible to see how people are getting things done despite all these hardships. And, and secondly, maybe this I'm, I'm overestimating or overappreciating the, the, the potential of innovation and agility in people's processes, but I think we're on the verge of an innovation renaissance in the business community. I think that we will see new businesses emerge out of this pandemic. I think that they will be rising to meet new challenges that we didn't even know existed before. I can't even imagine how people are going to respond and come up with new business models, but I think it's going to be potentially a very exciting time. So there's a couple things that I think are encouraging. Peter, what are your thoughts? I think I'd start off with the resilience point that Greg rightly alluded to. And you know, the examples of people singing their praises of the health service in Italy, the clap for carers in the UK, the US is doing similar things, I know. And that resilience, which is that we will get through this, I think is really important. And it is the the bedrock of how we can start to think and move forward. We can tap into that trust and goodwill. I think the the point regarding the new norm is that there will be new businesses, there will be different models, there will be different styles and approaches to leadership because that is what is required. You're going to have the next 6, 12, 18 months, which is going to have a certain set of characteristics and parameters that are probably not going to look too similar to what was successful in the past which because they were different horses for different courses and the place that we find ourselves now is very different so we will innovate an innovation renaissance i would love to see and i think actually if you look back over history we innovate every uh, 20 or 30 years so i think we're time for the next era of uh, innovation and renaissance across the whole gamut of industry because it's touched every aspect, every sector, every market, every consumer, every employee. And the chances to innovate, be agile, to think outside the box, there's never been a better opportunity to do that. The reasons for that are incredibly sad through the global pandemic, but it is the catalyst for a huge amount of energy being put into how do we move forward? how can we start to progress for the benefits of all of us? Well, Peter and Greg, thank you for your time and for a really uh, insightful discussion. And to our listeners, as always, we hope you're staying safe and staying healthy and staying connected. Thank you for listening. The Performance Matters podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts and listen on our website at gpstrategies.com slash podcasts.